And now if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah 14. Last week we opened up the final oracle, the final word that closes this book, and that's in chapters 12, 13, and 14. And we got through chapters 12 and 13 last week. We saw that the nations are going to come against Israel, but that God will deliver his people. And he'll do that kind of in a twofold way. Uh, He will directly intervene in the coming invasion, and he will also empower his people to have victory over their enemies. So it's kind of a a twofold way that God accomplishes victory over his enemies and the enemies of his people. But also what we saw is that restoration, that rescue of the people leads to a spiritual restoration. That in that day, it said that God pours out his spirit on Israel. And this picture we're given is of Israel as a nation, as a whole, but then Israel individually. Husbands and wives, various families, as the Spirit is poured out on them, what they see with their opened eyes, with their softened hearts, is their rejection of the Messiah who came to save them. Save them. In other words, the first thing that spiritually opened eyes see is the reality of their sin and rejection. And as they look on him who they pierce, they mourn like someone who's lost their only child. And that mourning is a sorrowful response, but it's an appropriate response to sin. There is no repentance without a recognition of the terrible cost of sin. But that recognition and that repentance then in chapter 13 says it leads to a fountain of cleansing being opened to them. And that fountain of cleansing that cleanses them spiritually then leads to changed actions. It's a drastically changed people. It becomes a people where idolatry is no longer a hallmark of what their worship looks like where false prophecy is no longer a plague to the nation as it has been for their whole history, that they're finally going to desire and they're finally going to be able to accomplish right worship in light of who God is. But to get to that point, they are going to have to move through very difficult circumstances. The shepherd is struck and the sheep will be scattered. And we see that in the ministry of Christ as the shepherd is struck and his disciples are scattered. But even as the shepherd is struck, decades later, the nation is scattered. When they reject the good shepherd, the nation moves once again into exile, bondage, and discipline. And we pointed forward to this time coming when there's a severe trouble, but when God will preserve for himself a remnant. In the midst of great chaos and death, God preserves for himself a remnant, and that remnant refines like gold that's passed through the fire. He saves his people from destruction for the purpose of refining them and finally calling them his people. And today we're going to finish the book. And it's this amazing picture of things that are going to come. Uh, This is the pinnacle of prophetic testimony about what the end times will look like according to the minor prophets here. So if you're not there already, find your way to Zechariah chapter 14. And I'm going to start reading in verse 8. It's a little further down, but it really kind of sets the stage for where this is all going. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Let's pray. Lord, once again, as a people, we recognize that all of human history moves forward to a culminating point where the Lord is the Lord of the earth. Lord, your sovereignty, even now, is a reality. You sit enthroned above your whole creation, but Lord, creation itself longs for the time when the King rules over his creation, when your will is accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. And so, Lord, as we come to your word today, uh, to a prophetic portion of scripture that can be difficult and where there can certainly be different uh, understandings and interpretations. 
And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes. As we do every week, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, our desire can't just be to have an intellectual understanding. It can't be to validate a particular position. It certainly can't be to win an argument. Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts to a longing for truth, to see what you have left us in your inerrant word. And Lord, as we come to understanding, help us then to apply that, to live in light of that. Lord, bring us to a place where we're able to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And we need your help to do that. Our salvation, our sanctification, like every other part of human history, is an outworking of your good, sovereign plan. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes endings are letdowns. A few years ago, maybe some of you were deeply invested in the TV show Lost, and while I wasn't, I remember distinctly the outcry that came when that series ended and people lost their minds about how badly it ended. I think I fell asleep several episodes in, so that was okay with me. But we've all had that experience. We've all had the anticipation of something great that is to come. And when it comes, it is absolutely underwhelming, whether that's the end of the movie, the end of the novel, uh, the big trip to Disneyland where you remember that it's like $1,000 to get in, and then it's you and two million of your closest friends waiting in line for four hours, and it just doesn't quite live up to the hype. We are coming to the end of a book today that every bit of it lives up to the hype that we would expect. Uh, This is the culminating picture of what happens in the end, in the final battle of good versus evil that has been raging since the garden. And if you leave today underwhelmed or bored, it is my fault and not God's word, because this is a fascinating picture of what is going to come. It is, again, the culmination of that epic struggle between the plan and the will of God and the striving against that of his enemies, both spiritual and physical. This is the promise of victory. This is the final hope. And the first thing that we're going to see is this picture of the king coming. As the king comes to take possession of his kingdom is what this king will do. And the first thing that the king is going to do is this is the king that rescues We saw this last week. We develop it in further detail today. This is the king who is going to rescue his people. And what is he rescuing them from? Uh, He's rescuing them from slaughter. Verse 12, or chapter 12, opens with difficult verses. Not difficult to understand. Not difficult to interpret, but difficult to read. Because this points to a time of slaughter and destruction uh, that is graphic. And this is a picture that is coming to God's people. Look what he says In chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. And we should probably stop right there. Don't miss that. Because these next verses are going to describe terrible things. Dark and difficult days that fall on God's people. We have to remember that hard things, even tragic things, even unspeakably evil things, do not fall outside of the plan and the purpose and the sovereignty of God. Israel needs to understand that. That even the darkest times in their national existence are not a surprise or a shock to the Lord that they serve. This is a day that is coming for the Lord. It is a day of His design. It's a day that falls under His control. And it's a day that is ultimately going to fulfill His good purposes. And that is so difficult to remember because look at what He says. This is a day when the spoil taken from among you will be divided in your midst uh, the close context makes it very, very clear that the spoil taken from among you is talking about Jerusalem. It's talking about this destruction that is going to come. And when you divide the spoil in their midst, it's like the victory party is happening in the middle of the battle. 
The destruction seems so clear. The victory for the enemies seems so assured that they start dividing up what they've won before they even leave the city. Usually, you take a city, you plunder all the stuff, and you go home and you divide it up later. They're so confident that they begin dividing the spoil right there in the midst of the city. God says, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and details matter. The nations are gathered against Jerusalem, but what does this word make it clear? Who gathers them? God has gathered the nations against Jerusalem. Do they gather because they hate Jerusalem and want to see its destruction? Absolutely. Do they come on their own initiative? Absolutely not. This is a parallel thought to what we saw in chapter 9. Who is it that ultimately overthrows Tyre? Who breaks down its walls and throws it into the sea? It's Alexander the Great from a historical perspective, but ultimately, who is behind the destruction of Tyre? It's God, who said this is exactly what is going to happen over 100 years before it actually happened. And at that time, as God decrees, the city will be taken, the houses plundered, and then he goes on to say that even the most vulnerable among them will be ravaged. And I'm not trying to sanitize what it says. I'm trying to be sensitive of the fact that parents might want to walk through some of that specific language on their own. This is a picture of destruction that comes on a city from a violent and hateful people. They're looking not only to remove physical goods, they're looking to devastate the population that lives there. Half of the people will go out in exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. It's this picture of ruin and devastation, but when does it happen? It can't be talking about the Babylonian invasion because, again, by the time Zechariah writes this, that is over 100 years in the past. That has already happened. This isn't even talking about what happens in AD 70 because that doesn't describe this. Titus and his legions that come in, they don't represent all the nations. They represent one nation. When they come in and when they destroy Jerusalem, when they tear the temple down brick by brick and stone by stone, they don't leave half of the city in there instead of sending them off to exile. This describes a future invasion that is unlike anything Jerusalem has experienced to this point in history, but it appears that there's a pause or an intervention halfway through it. Because on that day, when from a human perspective, all hope is lost, This is a day from a human perspective when there is absolutely no hope of redemption or salvation in the midst of this, that the king who comes brings salvation with him. Look at verse 3. Then at that time, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. At the darkest point in Jerusalem's very conflicted history, Yahweh shows up as a warrior on behalf of his people. And on that day, it says... His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Look, I don't know a way to make sense of that other than to understand that it means exactly what it says. That when the Lord returns, his feet physically touch the Mount of Olives, and there is a radical geographical change that happens at that time. And if you look on the slide behind me, you'll see a picture of the Mount of Olives from the Temple Mount side looking across the Kidron Valley. That looks familiar to some of you. If you were with us in Israel, we started our journey down the mountain on the top right and moved to the bottom left. His feet come down, and they touch the Mount of Olives, and the mountain itself divides. It's the place where Christ ascended to heaven, and it is not coincidental that it is the place where his feet touch the earth upon his return. And what was a mountain? What was a barrier to Jerusalem? This actually prevents escape moving to the east. It becomes a way of escape. And that means something. 
Because this same language with God pictured as a warrior on behalf of his people, this same language with people coming and with an intent to plunder his people, the same language with the idea of a barrier becoming a way of salvation is present in Exodus 15 in the Song of Moses after the people move across the Red Sea. It describes God as a warrior who makes a way of salvation where there was no way before. This ties back into Israel's past deliverance and points forward to a future deliverance that is still to come. A day when God will fight for his people and what was a hindrance to their salvation becomes the way of their escape. And verse 5 ends, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. In other words, when the Lord returns, it won't be alone. He comes with his holy ones. And again, over 500 years later, as John writes in the book of Revelation, he provides depth and clarity to this. There is a reason that we don't jump right in and preach Revelation the first thing somebody hears. There's a reason that is at the end of your Bible, we read Revelation through the prophetic lens that God has built up over the course of his revealed word. Okay, prophecy builds on each other. It clarifies. It doesn't contradict. It doesn't reinterpret. It provides a lens through which we view the later prophecies, and it gives depth and clarity. You go through this week, and I promise you, you read through Revelation, and what do you see? Starting in chapter 15, you see this cry in heaven in Revelation 15. Uh, The angels cry out, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Where do we see that promise, again, of all the nations coming to worship God? Over and over and over in the Minor Prophets. But before the nations come to worship, the nations experience the wrath of God. And guess what Revelation goes on to talk about? Revelation 16, the gathering of the kings of the world assembled for battle against Jerusalem at a place called Armageddon. Revelation chapter 17 describes how they make war against the Lamb and his people, but they're ultimately conquered by him because he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Revelation 18 describes the destruction of Babylon in a single day as God pours out his wrath against his people. Revelation chapter 19 begins with a scene of rejoicing in heaven because of the judgment of God and his victory over all of his enemies. Talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb where the saints are clothed in white, bright, pure linen like a bride made ready to meet her bridegroom. And then it concludes with that passage that we read at the beginning of the service today. The Lord returning to the earth, not in humility this time, but as a conquering king, and he comes with his heavenly armies. That is what Zechariah is writing about. This is the foundation for understanding what John writes again 500 years later. This is his return to earth, his consummation of human history, his consuming of his enemies. And then at that time, Revelation 20 talks about a kingdom that will be established over all the nations of the earth. And that is exactly what this anticipates all the way back in Zechariah and the Minor Prophets. It's a reminder that God does not forget, that God does not uh, feel the pressure or the need to change the course of his plans for human history, that God accomplishes every single one of his good and perfect purposes exactly as he intended from before Adam drew his first breath. This is the power of the king that is going to be demonstrated over the kings of the whole earth. And when the king comes, he will rescue his people. But what else does he do? Not only does he fight and rescue them, But at the coming of the king and his kingdom, he remakes his creation. There are physical changes that are coming as a result of the king's return. 
And the first thing that we see uh, as the king returns in this, this kind of impact that it has on the physical creation is that this is the Lord of light. The king that is coming has power over the heavenly bodies themselves. Look at verse 6. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And the first part of that verse is pretty easy to translate. It's very, con- very consistent. On that day there will be no light. But then the idea of cold or frost uh, gets a little bit mixed in some of the translations. Some of you have an NIV that says frosty darkness. Um, and there's a reason it's difficult uh, because the words there mean like congealed. It means like the precious ones are going to be congealed or muddied or mixed. But if you think about it as a parallel statement to the first half of it, then it makes sense. On that day, there will be no light because the heavenly bodies are going to be congealed. You've all seen things that are congealed, right? If you have kids, you've seen things that have been left out and they congeal. They're kind of cloudy. They're gross. They're opaque. They're hard to look through. On that day, the heavenly bodies themselves begin to fade like they were through a darkened glass. On that day, there will be no light. Why? Because on the day of the Lord, there's a a particular darkness and an impact on the heavenly bodies themselves. And again, we don't just find that here. It's in Isaiah 13. It's in Joel 2. It's in Joel 3. It's in Matthew 24. It's in Revelation 6. It's this consistent picture that as the king returns, it impacts the lights in the heavens themselves. It's not a result of climate change. It's not a result of human activity. Look at what verse 7 says. There will be a unique day which is known only to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there will be light. This is absolutely divinely driven. It's not a normal day because the sources of light have failed. But it won't be the complete absence of light because at evening time there won't be darkness. Why? Well, if the heavenly lights fade, what's the source of light? It's the glory of God himself. When the king breaks into his creation, he brings the radiant light of his presence with him. It's that majesty that accompanies God as he comes as king and redeemer and judge of his creation. And that's not the only change. Zechariah not only talks about the Lord of lights, Zechariah goes on then to talk about living water. Look at verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. It speaks about living waters, moving waters, a flowing river, a river that goes out from Jerusalem toward two seas. And once again, geography, very, very important. You can see on the map behind me a picture of the ancient Near East. And if you were to look at those capitals of places like Babylon and Assyria, if you were to picture the capitals of Egypt and Memphis over on the lower left, do you know what they're all situated near? Major rivers. Do you know why? Because water is life. And especially in a desert environment where there is no water, there is no life. And you look at Jerusalem and you notice there's not a lot of rivers there. And in fact, that big body of water right next to it that you see is not only not right next to it, but it's also deadly. It's the saltiest thing on on earth. But there's a time coming when Jerusalem becomes a source of water, a major river source that flows from one half to the Western Sea, which you can see is the Mediterranean, one half toward the Eastern Sea, which is the Dead Sea. And that river is so significant that it will flow all year long. Now, I grew up in the paradise of Santa Clarita. And if you can see the picture on the right there, that is the Google map or the MapQuest view of Santa Clarita. And if you were to look at just that picture on the left there, it looks like it is situated on the banks of the mighty Santa Clara River. That picture on the right is the mighty Santa Clara River 99% of the time. Unless there's an absolute deluge, it's just a dry riverbed. 
understand that this is pointing forward to a time in the desert, a very similar climate, when from Jerusalem, Ezekiel says specifically from the temple, but we'll get to that in a minute, that from this place where God's presence is, there is a river that flows all year round. This is no trickling stream. This is no seasonal torrent. This is a river that is absolutely new, and it is absolutely unique. And again, some people see this as a a picture of spiritual refreshment that flows out. And undoubtedly, when the Messiah rules from Jerusalem, it will be a source of spiritual refreshment. The problem is that physical waters are talked about frequently in the Bible as it relates to God's restored creation when he rules, Uh, particularly in Ezekiel 47 detailed measurements, not just of a river, but from the fact that it flows out of the threshold of a rebuilt temple. Not just a river that flows out from the temple, but a measured river. Like he gets actual measurements of the river's width and depth that make no sense if you're just going to use it in spiritual terms. It talks about an actual physical place that then flows down, Ezekiel says, to the Dead Sea and turns that body of salt water into a freshwater oasis, a place teeming with life, vibrant, refreshing, life-giving. It talks about this restoration, this remaking of the place where Yahweh rules from. It's a physical change that accompanies the king at his return. And the final change that Zechariah speaks about is the lifting up of the city of Jerusalem itself. Look at verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. What does that mean? Isn't God already one? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema from Deuteronomy. But of course, he has always been one. Isn't the Lord king? Absolutely. Psalm, 46, or Psalm 45, verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. There has never been a moment in all of human history where God has not ruled on his throne, sovereignly ordaining everything that happens in his creation. However, you cannot escape the fact biblically that there is this consistent look forward to a time when a throne will be established. When the sovereignty of God is not only a reality over his creation, but when the sovereignty of God and his anointed Messiah is a recognized reality among his creation. A time when the Messiah will sit on the throne of his father David. And on that day, the Lord will be one in his name one. On that day, the name of the Lord is going to be known and exalted not only in heaven, not only among his people, but among every nation on earth. And here's why this makes sense. When the Lord rules over his creation, the place where he rules from is not only spiritually exalted, it is physically exalted. The whole land, verse 10, or verse 10 the whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. And we hear plain and we think that's not very exciting. Um, and it's not. But what we have to understand is not just a plane, it is the plane. This is in reference to the whole land being made like a particular thing. And if you look on this next slide uh, that's coming up, you'll see that dark green area over to the right. That is this extended depression that runs from Mount Hermon in the north all the way down past the Dead Sea in the south. It, It is the lowest point on earth. The people would have understood that when Zechariah writes this, he's saying the whole land is going to be like that everything made low, but when everything else is made low, Jerusalem, the next half of verse 10, shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine press. Those locations are difficult to pinpoint, but what it is, it's the extent of a renewed city. 
It's geographical, physical markers of Jerusalem restored to the height of its power, the height of its influence. See, on that day, the king will rule from his exalted city. It's not just a spiritual reality. It's a visible, physical, real change. And not only is it a renewed and restored city, it's a secure city. Look at verse 11. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. The city is going to again be filled with people. After the destruction that opens the chapter, remember that? Half of the city destroyed, devastated, sent out to exile. When the king comes, when the king remakes and restores his creation, when the king elevates and exalts his place, Jerusalem then becomes a populated, secured city. Where have we seen that before? It wasn't even that long ago. It was in the night visions of Zechariah back in chapter 2. What was promised of Jerusalem? That it would, the measuring line would go out again and that it would be inhabited like a city without walls, that it would be so populated that walls couldn't contain the people, but that won't be a problem. Normally not having walls around you is a problem because there's threats of invasion and danger and robbers and uh, attacks from the outside. But in that day, he said, that it will be secure because the Lord himself would be like a wall of fire around his people. Do you remember that? This is the culmination of that. This is what that looks forward to a renewed and restored and exalted city where the presence of God himself dwells. And so there is no more threat. There is no more decree of destruction against Jerusalem. There is no more time coming when, well, they might falter and fail again, when they might be oppressed and overcome again. It's a permanent security now that they dwell in because the Lord himself is with them. So this king is going to come and rescue his people. This king is going to come and remake the land and restore and exalt Jerusalem itself. And as Zechariah moves us forward, now we're going to see that when the king returns, not only does he restore and remake his creation, but now when the king returns, he rules over the nations. One of the great messianic psalms is Psalm 2. It's even referenced there in Revelation 19 that we read at the beginning. It's this picture of the nations gathered, uh, ready to throw off the bonds of the Lord. And one of the great images in the Bible, Yahweh laughs. He laughs at the feeble rejection of the nations. He establishes his king, his anointed one, his Messiah. And he says, here the nations are your inheritance. Rule them, shatter them like with a rod of iron. And when the king returns, Zechariah shows us what it looks like for him to rule with that rod of iron. Verses 12 to 15 kind of pick up chronologically where verse 3 left off. There's a day coming when the nations are gathered against Jerusalem. There's a day coming when they overthrow the city, when they divide the spoil in the midst of them. There's a day coming when Yahweh directly intervenes and rescues his people. And then uh, Zechariah goes on to talk about the impacts of that. Now we come back to what it looks like on that day when Yahweh fights for his people. There's this sudden plague that comes on them that consumes them. And the bodies that they use to fight the eyes that they use to look with hatred on his people, the tongues that they use to blaspheme God and reject his people rot where they stand. This is not an eventual decay. It is a sudden plague that absolutely devastates the army. And at that time, he says, the wealth of the nations is going to come into Jerusalem. The people who thought that they would rob and destroy Jerusalem end up getting plundered and destroyed themselves. And again, it's parallel to what we read in places like Isaiah 60, verse 5, where God says that the riches of the nations will flow into Israel. 
And it's so severe that the plague not only impacts the human warriors, but it impacts any animals that they have in their camp. Essentially, it is a picture of complete devastation and destruction. Uh, That Yahweh takes no prisoners and that he absolutely and completely obliterates the army that is gathered against his people. The might of the surrounding nations would be impossible for one city to overcome. Again, you cannot get away from the fact that from a human perspective, when the nations gather against Jerusalem, this is a hopeless scenario. This is a hopeless situation. But the direct intervention of the Lord means that the king is going to shatter his enemies like a clay pot with an iron rod. But what happens? What happens after that initial rescue and that initial victory? What happens when the king does establish his throne? What does that look like? Well, then we see the response of the nations. Look down at verse 16. Or turn the page to 16. Verse 16 says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. When the king rules on his thrones, the nations respond with worship and obedience. And the first promise is that the nations that once rebelled now go toward Jerusalem not for destruction, but now they go to Jerusalem for the purpose of worship. And again, it's not new to Zechariah. But we don't have to try and kind of spiritually put together what happens. This is a consistent promise throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 3, verse 17. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. All nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. Isaiah 66, verse 18. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will see my glory. And then in Isaiah 66, 23, from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all the nations will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Is that not exactly what Zechariah has been pointing to? Not just a place of prominence and importance, but a physically altered Jerusalem, a physical victory by the king, and physical nations that move toward Jerusalem now in worship. Not only worship generally, but they come to celebrate particular feasts. They come to celebrate the Feast of Booths. It's one of the seven feasts that God gave to Israel. And This is one of those places that is very rich, and I have been told that I cannot say everything about everything all the time, so I'm trying to guard that. I would encourage you, read Leviticus 23, think on the ministry of Jesus Christ, and you will see why the Feast of Booths in particular is so messianic in nature, and if you want to talk more about it, please let's do that, but I have to go on. What happens if the nations don't go? The king rules from his throne. The king says, year by year, you are going to come and you are going to celebrate this feast of ingathering together, not only as a nation, but as the nations. What happens if the nations decide not to show? Look at verse 17. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there will be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt 
and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. See, if the nations refuse to worship, the nations then find themselves under the direct and immediate discipline of God. How does God interact with foolish nations now? God sends rain on the just and the unjust. There's a time coming when the king rules over his creation where rebellion and rejection bring immediate consequences. See, what was the promise of the good shepherd to his people? You remember that back in chapter 10? Ask of rain and I'll send it. That picture of provision, an immediate provision for their needs. And now we see the other side of that as the king rules on his throne. If anyone would dare to throw off that rule, if anyone would dare to fail in their obedience at that time, then the king reminds them that he is in absolute control over them and he sends not only no rain, but he sends a plague on them. Immediate, unmistakable judgment until they repent and respond differently, until they respond in obedience. And passages like this are one of the major indications that what is coming next is not simply the eternal state, that we don't simply move from this existence into the heavenly existence where all sin and rebellion is done away with. These are major passages that talk about a kingdom that is coming where there are still nations, where there are still rebellions even, but where the king rules absolutely over all of those nations. There's still punishment, still drought, doesn't fit with the eternal state, but it does align perfectly with a rule of a king over his kingdom on the throne of his father David. And the final verses in this chapter talk about the king not only ruling over his nations, not only the nations, but they talk about the king who restores his people. We have seen him rescue Jerusalem and Israel physically, but again, over and over, and so it should come as no surprise that the book concludes with this. The physical rescue and restoration of Israel is tied to the spiritual restoration and rescue of Israel. These verses that this closes with are a profound illustration of what that looks like and how deep that goes. First, let's look at the picture of restoration. Look at verse 20. On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. Stop there for a second. That phrase, holy to the Lord, is important. To be holy means to be set apart, distinct, kept for special, particular use. And in the life of the nation of Israel, there were not many things that were set apart as holy to the Lord. On the front of the turban of the high priest, there's a gold plate that is marked with the words, holy to the Lord. There's a particular blend of incense that was used in the tabernacle and in the temple a recipe that the people were not allowed to make for themselves for any other purpose, and that was said to be holy to the Lord. The tithe, the tenth, the first part of your harvest was not for you. It was set apart as holy to the Lord. The nation of Israel itself was called to be a set-apart people that were supposed to be holy to the Lord. In other words, you have your common things and you have the Lord's things. And there was a dividing line between those two. You do not get to dress like the Lord's high priest. You do not get to smell like his place of worship. Not all the crops that you grow are for you. You as a people are not your own. You belong as a special possession to the Lord. 
There are common things, and then there are the Lord's things. See, where there's sin, you have to have separation there. Because if there's going to be worship, you have to have things that aren't polluted, that aren't defiled, so that they're fit for worship. I don't know how many of you have been around horses for any length of time. Everybody wants one when they're little. But then you're an adult and you stand next to them. And they smell. And you have to clean up after them. And that smells. Horses are not exactly pure, clean animals that you would think of as fit for worship. And yet there's a time coming when even the bells of the horses will be seen as wholly set apart, fit for worship before the Lord. What this is, is the picture of a nation so redeemed, so transformed, that it is entirely fit for the purpose of worship. From the bells of the horses to the pots in the temple and every pot, verse 21, in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of sacrifice in them. In the land, there is no longer a distinction between holy and profane. In the land, when the king rules, when he purifies his people, they are made fit for worship. Even so far as to say that everyone is fit to offer sacrifices to the Lord, do you understand how radically different that is than the requirements under the law? When God's people are made fit to come before him in worship. And the final verse speaks of the purity, not just of the people, but of the land. It says, there will no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Bible version might have Canaanite there. The picture is the same. It's not just a particular nationality. It's the idea of one who pursues dishonest or immoral gain. In other words, the bad guys are finally done away with. There's a time coming when there's not going to be anyone left in the place of worship who rejects the rule and the reign of the Lord. Think about the history of Israel. Empty feasts, empty festivals, vain sacrifices, because there was no heart toward worship. And now this points to a future when God has redeemed his people and made them fit and ready to worship their long-awaited king. But what's the point of all of that? That's, that's the end of the chapter, but what's the point of all of this? The point is that God rescues these people, and the immediate result is their holiness. He rescues them for the purpose of right worship. God does not rescue and restore Israel simply so that they feel better. He does not rescue and restore Israel simply so they can be wealthy and comfortable. He does not rescue Israel so that they can gloat over the nations. He saves them so that they will be holy. He saves for himself a people so that they will be fit to be in his presence and worship. And as God refines the people that he has made holy, he restores the purpose that he called them out to be a nation for in the first place. When God called them to be his people, he said you will be set apart, distinct from all others. He said you will be a kingdom of priests, mediators between God and the nations around you. He said you're going to live in obedience, and that is going to bring blessing that brings a testimony to God's power and goodness. And the history of Israel is a consistent testimony of their failure to be all of those things. But there's a time coming when those purposes will be restored 
when the nation will be holy and set apart, fit to worship, when the nation will function like a kingdom of priests. And Zechariah says that people will cling to the robe of a Jew and say, bring me to the place of your worship. There's a time coming when they will exist in the provision, the plenty, and the blessing of God as a testimony to the power of God and the blessing of living in fellowship with Him. As the land itself becomes a source of life and beauty and Messiah rules over the nations. And all of this is for Israel's good, but ultimately all of this is to the praise of the glory of God. That's the end of the story. The glory of God. When we consider that phrase, your kingdom come, what's the next line? Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. We know that next line. This is a glimpse of what it looks like. What is it going to look like for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven? This. This is a taste of that. This reminds us that the world here, now, and always is and always has been under the sovereign direction and care of its creator. This reminds us that nations rise and fall, but that the word of the Lord and that his kingdom will last forever. Zechariah points us forward to a day that is coming when the king will sit enthroned over all the nations, a day that sees the purification of his people, the defeat of his enemies, and the restoration of creation itself. This reminds us that God is able to do all that he intends. So how do we live in light of this? First of all, we need to remember God in the trial. This passage and others remind us that God is not absent in our trial. God will bring Israel through a deeply distressing and refining process. God saw Israel in captivity in Egypt. God saw them and moved them into captivity in Babylon. God has a plan and a purpose for their difficulty. In the end, God is not ever unaware or caught off guard by crisis. And not only is he sovereign over our circumstances, but he uses those to accomplish his eternal good. These verses, these passages remind us that God is not absent when he feels the farthest away from us. Second, this is a reminder that he is the God of the nations. Because it's not just us who are in crisis, right? We look around at the international news, and there is war, and there is conflict. We look around at the national news, and there is political infighting and posturing and backstabbing. We look at the local news, and there is crime and poverty and hopelessness and anger and insecurity. But we serve the God who directs nations. And so we don't have to live in fear and security. That doesn't mean that dangerous things, that painful things can't or won't happen. It simply means that we're allowed and able to approach them differently than the world around us. That you and I have the ability to not just say nice things and true things, but that you and I have the ability to live in hope and peace and joy and comfort and security in a world that doesn't know any of those things because we know the God who holds all of human history in his hands. What are we teaching a watching world about the God that we believe in by our responses to circumstances. And finally, you and I have the privilege of knowing God's good purpose. This week would be a good time for us to reflect on God's purpose in our lives. 
As God saves Israel, it means Israel's good. That is absolutely true. But as God saves Israel, He ultimately accomplishes their holiness. I do not know what you're facing. I would not presume to say this is the specific reason and order for those things. But I can tell you that God's ultimate purpose in everything that you and I work through is that He makes for Himself a people holy, set apart, and like the Son. In Revelation, we see a people cleansed, clothed, refined, purified, like white shining garments. What God is doing in your life right now is making you like a bride ready to meet her bridegroom. And every day that he leaves us on this earth, every joy, every trial, every struggle, every heartache, every heartbreak is another tool that the refiner uses to burn away what doesn't last and to refine what ultimately does. God in his good plan is rescuing and saving for himself a people who he will ultimately make fit to be in his presence. And as often as my goal is anything other than that, I will find myself frustrated, disappointed, and despairing because God is not doing what I think he ought to. But as often as I correct my perspective and see that God is doing something that is making me more like him, it enables me to humbly cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, help me even in the midst of this. But ultimately, Lord, make me more like you. Because it's only in that that there's eternal joy and satisfaction in his presence. Let's pray. You are the God of human history, and yet, Lord, you would hear our prayers. You're the God enthroned in the praises of angels, and yet you would hear our songs. There is no one like you. Who else could command the host of heaven? Who else makes every knee bow? What other God enthroned in praises could still call us his sons and daughters? What other God would still give his son so that we might be rescued from our sin? Only the holy God that we worship. You, Lord, are worthy of all of our praise. Amen.